Blog Talk Radio. Monday morning, the start of a new week. We have, I know they always say it's the first day of the rest of your life, but it's the first day of the rest of all of our lives. And it's such an interesting world because every day comes with so much, so many decisions trying to be made and so many things that we're planning to do. And we keep pushing the dates out, you know, like, okay, we're going to do this by July. We're going to do this by August. And we have no idea. But we have to be hopeful. We have to try. We have to be part of a growing mental state of mind. And if it doesn't work out by July or by August, we'll deal with it. We'll know on our way there. We always get those gut feelings. So today, I since we have this time and probably for a shorter time than obviously when we started, even though we're not sure yet about where this is going. We've learned to take, okay, I'm okay today. I have enough to eat. I have a roof over my head. My family's okay. Everybody around me is okay. I can come up with stuff to do. I can come up with things to try. I have this time. And in this time, we are questioning ourselves, like, hey, you know, why do I always do that? Or why did I always do that that way? What's going on with me? So we ask those questions, those little, little hurts in us that show up as adults because maybe they weren't addressed and maybe, just maybe, we did not even know we have them. And we're in a place in our lives where we blame others. We we feel anxious all the time. Our moods might swing from one mood to another. We might overreact to certain things. We might have difficulty managing stress. We might have this like deep like seated belief that the world is a dangerous place. We may not feel good trusting others. And no matter who around, we may not even feel like we're part of the crowd that we're in. All of that goes back to our childhood. When somebody starts talking about all the things that are not working in life. There's a reason they're saying that. 
There's a reason when I'm scared of the world that I'm talking about being scared of the world. And every once in a while, it will get me. Because, you know, even with the coronavirus, I'm like, oh, we got to do this, we got to do that. Everybody's going to get it, which is what they said. Everybody was going to get it. But how does that show up in us now, in our conversations, in the decisions we make, in how we approach other people? Do we approach them with trust? Do we approach them with distrust? Do we, like, make them earn everything? How do we react to them? And how do we set the stage to work out our hurts? How do we tell somebody, well, everybody in my life has hurt me before. And now what is that person supposed to think? I'm either not going to hurt you or this is too much for me to take on. Because those little childhood traumas, most of the time, we know where it started. There's something Christ taught me about how our innocence, that innocence part of us, starts showing up as an adult. Because the innocence that was hurt in us as a child. Because you know how they say you got to lose your innocence, you're too innocent for the world. That part of us that wants to believe the world is a big safe place, that starts way back. That doesn't happen as adults. We may see the world as, oh, wow, the world isn't safe right now, but we can also see it getting better if we, were, if we addressed our emotional or our psychological type of traumas that we had as a child. Because that long-lasting effect on us of that fear and that helplessness that carries over into our world as adults. That's a hard one to undo unless you are aware of the fact that, hey, wow, you know, I kind of have a lot of anxiety. If I, if I get in an argument, I internalize it and I depress, right? My passion is now squashed. Oh, but that's okay. I'm used to being depressed. Nobody cares about me. The world is not fun. I'm going to go hide in a hole for a while. And then you kind of regenerate and then you come back out to the world. Or if somebody gets upset with you or maybe they may say something. They don't, they're not even upset, but they may say something that triggers you. Like, wow, you're late again. And the truth is, you're probably late all the time. And you know you're going to be late. They know you're going to be late. But when they say to you, you're late again, you may overreact and say, why do you always say I'm late? When you know. You know you're late. Otherwise, the other person wouldn't have said anything. Instead of just saying, yeah, you're right. You know, I tend to run behind and I don't know why I do that. I think I just need to start. I just need to start a little earlier before I decide to go somewhere. Then it's done, you learn, they're fine, everyone's fine. But if you feel like the whole world is always attacking you, now it's their fault for acknowledging the truth. Only because you have to prove to yourself that you deserve 
you deserve to be hurt and you got to fight for yourself and that's how you're fighting for yourself. And that's not fighting for yourself. That's protecting your pain. That's investing in our pain. How do we know? How do we go back? What what a fork in the road that one is, right? You got to go back to when you were a young kid. But this is where I would tell you is to go back as far as you could remember where you've started to feel like people are attacking you, whether you were in school, whether you're at home. Most of the time, it starts with how we are treated as children. And one very important thing I found out about that time was depending on the level of sensitivity of the child, of any of us at that time, would have determined or helped determine that level of trauma you took. And I call it trauma because it lasts a long time, which is traumatic. It takes a lot of space in your life to point fingers at everybody. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of time. But we do it because our sensitivities, the way we look at life, And some of us are way more intense and sensitive than others. But it also depends on the risk taker type you were as a child. I was, for whatever reason, I just was like a street rat. I was just all over the place. I wanted to know everything and try everything. and, And I would, you know, win some and lose some. I lived when... I was first born until I was six years old. We lived on the east side of Chicago. It was not a good neighborhood. It was a kind of neighborhood where you could get easily beat up on your way home from school. Had my parents stayed there, I would have been a whole different person because I was already trying to survive. I was trying to buy love. I was... I, I stole money from my mother. It was her, her, and I remember so clearly. It was like 19, had to be 67 or 68 because it was before we moved, so I had to be five years old. And I opened my mom's purse behind the curtain. I'd go in her wallet. She had one $5 bill in there, and I took it. And I took it by candy for everyone on our block so that they would play with me that day. And I went. And I did buy candy. There's a whole other part to the story. But I bought candy for everyone because at the time, we had penny candy. I couldn't even spend the $5.00. I remember getting a lot of money back. It was a lot more than I gave him. And as a child, I thought I had more money than I started with because it came back to me in pieces. But that was a result of a hurt. That was a result of fear, of doubt, of worry. I wasn't a thief by nature, and I didn't think of myself as a thief. I thought of myself as a survivor. Like, oh, well, if they're going to beat me up over this, or this is going to happen over here, nobody talks and plays with us, darn it, 
I'm going to give them a reason to come to me. And Penny Candy was my solution. And I bought Batman cards at the time because the Batman cards had like the characters on the front side. But if you collected enough of the um, back ones, they would make, they were like a puzzle and they would make a picture. So I bought enough for us to try to do that. I tried to create an activity the way my mind understood. So I did that. And then with the Batman cards, there's this piece of bubble gum that used to come with it. And, and it was really good at the time. So I made sure that everybody would get a piece of bubble gum. I only remember like one or two of the kids. One woman, I think her name was, well, woman, girl. Her name was Pat. I, I distinctly, but I can't remember completely what anybody looks like. And I'd been traumatized by then by the block. I mean, at the time when a potato chip was a complete real potato without stuff on it, you know, and somebody would drop a potato chip on the ground, there would be like a whole ant colony on top of it. And I remember one day I was walking home, I don't even know from where, and a kid, and his name was Dennis, that I remember, opened my pants, picked up the potato chip with all the ants and dropped it in my pants. I truly had ants in my pants. And I ran home screaming. And then my mom started screaming at me, wondering where I was prior to that happening. And yet I never thought of it as people doing that to me. I kept thinking, how was I going to reach them? Well, that became who I was as a person. How do I reach this person? So I learned because one, English, which I did not have a command of at that age. I couldn't really speak it well. And I had that fighter in me. I don't know why. I don't know if it was, and I know this is going to sound horrible to say, but when my parents would tell me to do something, I never listened when I was a kid. I just found a way to do it. In my brain, I said, hey, wait a minute. Why can't I do that? I want to try it. And I would try it. That money I took from my mother, I got the biggest beating for of my lifetime. And I, I've told this story before, but for the new listeners, it was nothing Nothing to sweep under the table. My dad had an alligator belt that we were always scared of. Well, it got used on me. Because on top of stealing, I lied. Because now the money's missing. Where did it go? Well, they came to us. And when I saw how mad they were, I said, my brother did it. And my brother got hit. Not hard, but he got hit. And he got looked at and he kept saying he didn't do it and nobody believed him. Stood there. I was the only person who believed him because I knew I did it. But when I saw what happened to him, there was no way I was talking. I was a kid. But look what happened. And this was a defining moment in what probably could have been a trauma where I would have lived my life stealing and trying to get away with it. But instead, that trauma got addressed, that trauma I had of 
not being able to play with people, not being accepted, not being what I perceived as love or one of the gang. The owner of that store, I mean, think about how days used to be where the owner of a store would walk to your house. But he came to our house and he rang the doorbell. And when people rang the doorbell, that usually meant we had company. So I run with my dad to the door. Yesterday was gone. We're on to a new day. And my template is is setting itself into how I'm going to be as a human being, as an adult. It's in the process, live time. Who knew, right? Doorbell rings. I run with my dad. The guy says to my father, you know, I just came to check. Your daughter had $5 to buy candy yesterday, and I gave her the change. I wanted to make sure you got it, but why would you give your daughter $5 to walk around with? And it wasn't because of being stolen or anything. It was considered a lot of money at the time. And my dad said, my, my daughter? And he pointed at me. Yeah, your daughter, her. My dad was good to him. I can't remember the rest of the conversation because by then my blood went to my feet. But what happened after that changed the entire trajectory of my life. And I'm so grateful it happened, even though it wasn't pretty. My dad, as soon as he closed that door, I know he was screaming at me. I don't remember what he said because he pulled me by my nose while he was saying it to the back porch. And he got that alligator belt. And he truly took me down. And I mean, think, my body was like five or six years old, so I couldn't have been that big. Uncle was there, which I didn't remember till years later because he told me. And I asked him, I said, wow, you were there? Couldn't even remember. But I did remember hearing my mom say to my father, hit her anywhere but her head. Don't hit her head. I had welts all over my body. My entire body was shaking. My mom was heating olive oil to wipe it on my body. But because I knew what I did, To bring that on, there was no way I couldn't. I got in trouble for two things. One, taking the money. And two, lying about it and letting my brother get hit without saying anything. Not to mention, he got an apology and treated like a king as a result of what I did. And I was getting hot olive oil rubbed onto my welts. And I don't remember how many days, but it was a few that I stayed in bed. And when I got up and started walking around, it was never about apologizing, because back then they didn't make us say we were sorry. My parents came from another country. It was like that took care of it. We never talked about it again. But the result of that trauma Because in my brain, my sensitivities weren't that low. By then, I'd already been rejected by kids. I'd already been, you know, my parents were very strict. 
I'd already been pushed. So my sensitivities weren't that strong. I was like a fighter person. So what happened? I had a very hard time lying. I couldn't lie. I never I never was able to and I grew up saying, "Man, I get in more trouble for telling the truth than if I just lied about it." And I started wishing I could lie, but I I was like the worst truth is better than the best lie. I ended up teaching my kids that. That's where that came from. But I want you to see what happened to my younger sister. I have a sister two years younger than I was, so she had to be four at the time. She witnessed this. My brother witnessed this. My younger sister, because her sensitivities were very high, she would never tell anybody what she was doing in fear that that could happen to her. When we'd have company, She wouldn't even want to sit with them. She'd be like, why do you always want to talk to people? And she didn't want to clean up after them. Because back in the day when we had company, we had to serve them tea and serve them this and serve them that. And one of us would end up with all the dishes at the end of the night. So me, because I wanted to be around people to the point where I stole money to feed them, stole it. She would just go to bed as soon as the company came. Nobody ever saw her. And until this very day, as an adult, she still doesn't like being around people. And if you call her, you're hard-pressed for her to pick up the phone. She may never do it. But then if you text and now she's going to be a grandma, she's really excited. (laughs) She's out sharing with the world. But another thing happened with her, because her sensitivities were different. One day, as adults, fast forward, we're both adults. I'm already living in California. I'm visiting Chicago. There's a party at her house. And I just happened to hear her talking to people, telling them how my dad used to hit us when we were kids. And back in the day, granted, whoopings were a normal part of any of our lives, not just my family's, but we'd always say, oh, you're getting a whooping tonight. We used to talk like that. It's no longer okay, and it should never have been okay, but it was okay then, unfortunately, for my generation. But either way, I heard her telling people that, and it was so far away from my brain that I thought she was lying. And I pulled her aside, and I'm like, hey, what are you telling people Dad did that for? Why would you tell anyone that? And I don't remember that. Well, look what happened. You want to talk about the difference of healing and not healing. No one, because she avoided people, including our parents, out of fear, she never would stick around with my mom or dad, and have long hours of conversation. She would just go hide in our room or play with boys. She was what they used to call a tomboy. She used to dress like a boy and act like a boy until she looked really like a girl, and then all the boys liked her. But prior to that, 
my mom would say, boy, your boys are so cute. And really, it was a boy and a girl. Because she found every single way to protect herself from people. I, no matter what my parents did to me, something in me just loved being around them. I loved being around older people because they always talked. And my mom would talk to me about intentions, and and it's called Niyya in Arabic because the only book she ever read was a Quran. And my father would always talk to me about how much he loved us. And one day, when I was coming home from work with my dad, because we owned a grocery store and I worked with him, we'd have these talks on our five-mile drive home. And one day, he apologized to me for hitting me. And he said to me, I will never hit you again. And I'm sorry, it hurt me more than it hurt you when it happened. And then he never hit me again. And, you know, I healed. I didn't know it at the time, but because he kept his word, and I believed him when he told me because he was so sorry. Now, he had that talk with me, but he did not have that talk with my sister. He did not have that talk with her. And she grew up with the trauma. She does not manage stress well, so she stays away from it. She does think the world is full of, I don't want to say what she thinks. And that is a dangerous place, and we do have to protect ourselves from it. She does like to be isolated. Completely ran the gamut of her life. But because I faced my father by not being scared of him for that, and I know this is going to sound truly, absolutely weird, but I trusted him more, it was the fact that the lack of truth is what bothered him. The lack of truth, the fact that he fought for the truth to the point where it got instilled in me for not lie, for not telling the truth. The reason he was upset at me was a reason people do get upset. So somewhere in my brain, I accepted that what I did wasn't okay, period. Period. And then when he had the talk with me, that was the reason, because now we're talking about maybe 12, 15 years later that I'm at this party and I hear my sister talking because she was still living in the injury of her sensitivities being hurt as a child. And I healed from it because I faced it. It's the most real-life example I can give you about the difference between facing something and not facing something. Hiding from our pain, sleeping it away, not trusting it away, not trusting people away, all of that 
starts showing up at our door. But when we face something, we say, hey, you ugly little feeling, come here, let me see you. Let me see, let me, let me put a face on you. What really happened? What was my part in that? Well, if I didn't steal the money, my brother wouldn't have got hit. And if I didn't lie about it, I wouldn't have gotten double hit. So instead of me thinking the world was a dangerous place, I see the world as a tackle machine. Okay, I got that. Okay, I got that. And my sister, and now we're in our 50s, she's only two years younger than I am, still lives like that. And we all could see it a mile away, but you can say it all day and you're just looked at as the one who sees it. And that you're silly. Still. Still have that sibling thing. It's amazing. And Liam writes, ironically, you probably learned some great life lessons and people skills in the neighborhood. Yes. A lot of that happened. You guys, I can't believe the show's already over. I will see you tomorrow on Tuesday. Have a great beginning of the week. Bye-bye. You have been listening to today's Daily Dose of the Nadia Khalil Morning Show. To learn more, visit www.nadiakhalil.com.